An internal investigation found that a cop with the California Highway Patrol sexually harassed 21 women. But those findings were kept secret until a new state transparency law passed. We dug through hours of tapes to find out what happens to officers who cross the line. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. Hey there, before we get started this week, we want to ask a favor of you. We know you listen to this podcast for very personal reasons, and right now, NPR would like to get an idea of what those reasons are. So we're conducting a survey across all of our podcasts. This will help us so much and will give you a chance to tell us more about what you like or what you don't like about the show. Please help us out by telling us what you like and how we could improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Okay, let's get on with the show. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. And I'm Alt Latino producer Ana Maria Sayer. So when we were putting together this week's show, I guess the best way to kind of explain this is we had this moment where we were like, whoa, Latinx media is kind of all over the news right now. We kept coming across all these different pieces uh, that were discussing new pieces of media or developments with certain artists or certain media entering the cultural sphere, the mainstream, capital M, mainstream cultural conversation. So we figured we needed to take a moment or rather an episode to do a little survey of what's going on with Latinos in media right now. Felix, what do we have on the agenda for today? So we're going to dive into the phenomena that is the film In the Heights. It's an adaptation of the work that brought Lin-Manuel Miranda onto our radar. And also, the Pulitzer Prize for Music was awarded to a respected Cuban-American composer. And also, we're going to take a look at our favorite rock and roll band, Los Lobos. They were recognized for their four decades of musical cultural heritage. All of that happened in one week. Okay, so let's get right into our main story. Everyone, and I seriously, I think everyone, your tias, your abuela, like that lady down the street, they are all talking about In the Heights, right? So it's this film adaptation of the Broadway play written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Chiara Alegria Judes. It was released online and in theaters on June 11th, and the conversations in person and online um, expected it to be celebrating this as kind of a milestone for Latinos, right? People in La Comunidad are, are feeling pretty hurt about this. A lot of members of our community Afro-Latine members specifically um, have been starting a lot of conversations around who's represented and, and who's being seen in this film. Felix, what exactly is the controversy here? Can you can you give us a breakdown of the timeline of, of how it all went down? Yeah, because I think it's important to know how things happened in order to understand what happened. Okay, so the movie was released on June 11th, and it was pretty much celebrated. Everybody was talking about what a great film it was. And then there were questions about colorism. Okay, there were no Afro-Latinos in the leads, and the film takes place in Washington Heights, where there are a lot of Afro-Latinos. 
Then there was an interview on the website The Brute with the Afro-Latina journalist Feliz Leon. She was talking to director John Chu and some of the actors from the film, and she asked about the lack of Afro-Latinos, and their answers didn't really satisfy the people who were questioning the absence of Afro-Latinos. Then Lin-Manuel Miranda, just a few days ago, offered an apology on Twitter about how he recognizes the lack of Afro-Latinos in the film. He talks about how they try to do a good job, but they fell short. And it was, I thought, a very sincere apology and a very frank and honest conversation on his side about the colorism and some of the issues that were brought up. Wow. Yeah, that is complicated and difficult. And I think it has started a lot of conversations and had a lot of people talking about what making a quote capital L Latino film really means. Um, I think the intention of the creators was to have this be kind of a breakthrough piece for the community. Whether it was, whether it wasn't, we have decided to take a look at a legacy of Latinos in film, right? Felix, what do we have today? We're going to have a conversation next about the idea of breakthrough. And in fact, that there have been several breakthroughs with Latinos in film going back to the silent era. Check out this conversation. Hi, this is Marcella Davis and Aviles, and uh, I am executive producer and uh, managing director of Tomcat Media. I was the lead consultant for Coco. Your informal post on Facebook argued that there have been several breakthroughs regarding Latinos in Hollywood, going back to the silent film era. Okay, so the first question. So why are these breakthroughs significant and what does it say about Latinos and the film industry? Well, I think the work of artists such as Ramon Novarro, Maria Griever, Dolores del Rio, Maria Felix, you know, Desi Arnaz, they were breakthroughs because at the time they actually did break through a ceiling of oppression in Hollywood. They were the they were the first, uh, so to speak. So Ramon was, you know, a silent film star, beloved, and he was gay. And he was uh, his journey as a gay Latin lover, you know, gay in his real life, a Latin lover on the screen caused him, you know, incalculable challenges relative to claiming his agency and claiming his artistry. And then you have an artist like Maria Felix, who, you know, broke through the machismo, the culture of machismo in Mexico with a film like Goña Barbara. I mean, there's been tons of, of to her about, about her work. But an, a composer like Maria Griever, I mean, how many people have heard of Maria Griever? She was the first Mexican composer to achieve international acclaim. She wrote thousands of songs under contract to the Hollywood studios, Paramount and others. What a difference a day makes. She's in the Jazz Hall of Fame for composing What a Difference a, a Day Makes, except when she composed it, it's uh, Cuando Estoy a Tu Lado. A Tu Lado is, is the title. So I would, to answer your question, I think, we have a history in Hollywood. We have a tremendous legacy in Hollywood, up, you know, continuing to this day. And there were many, many, many artists who broke through, both because it was the first time that they were achieving acclaim and because of the excellence of their artistry. Tell us a little bit about Ricardo Montalban. What made him 
a first what made him a pioneer in that regard? Well, he was from Mexico, and he was one of the few Latino, Latinx stars, you know, legitimate stars in terms of, you know, in the studio system, under contract to the studios, appearing as a lead in many, many films, including with stars such as Lana Turner, for example. And he transcended Hollywood's attempt to typecast him as the hot Latin lover by achieving acclaim outside of that trope. His his artistry as an actor goes without saying. But if you go back and you look at some of his work, his early work, you can really see how talented he was as as an actor and as a performer. There's a there's a scene in one of his films where he's he's his role is uh you know he's a matador who wants to be a concert pianist and he's playing Salón de México on the piano and he's actually playing Salón de México he is playing it they recorded Andre Previn I believe but it was him you know at the piano that they that they filmed and you could tell that he knew the music so you know he is unsung in many ways and claimed in many ways I love his work just a wonderful artist and a, someone who gave back to his community and did you mention something about him having ownership of some of his films? I think he owned every film he appeared in. I mean, he was in the Star Trek films. He was in the Star Trek TV show. He played, you know, very famously the, the character of Khan. And he was just, he, he, the scenes that he's in, he owns those scenes. He claims agency not only of himself, but, you know, he enters the scene and it's just all, you're glued to his performance. He was just a consummate artist and, and someone really that, that I think folks today can, can look up to as, look, as well as look back on. Think of his trajectory, right? Think of what he had to go through when he was under contract to some of the big studios. I mean, you, they, you were put in a box. I mean, everybody was. If you came from a marginalized community and, you know, wanted to wanted to do well in the system. That was something that you had to contend with and then to then continue your career for as long as he did and to and to take on roles that perhaps may not, you know, be Shakespeare or Cervantes, <laughs> but were kept him in the public eye, you know, where he was earning his keep as a as a as an actor and allowed him to do other things, including give back to the community in, in the world of theater and his philanthropy. So he's so much more than Fantasy Island. I really encourage folks to go back and take a look at, at the career of Don Montalban. He was, he was an amazing actor, an amazing man. This is an actor that uh, you didn't mention, but I'm a big fan of, Anthony Quinn. Oh, my goodness. Seventy-five men have I killed with my own hands in battle. I scatter, I burn my enemies' tents. I take away their flocks and herds. The Turks pay me a golden treasure, yet I am poor because I am a river to my people. He, you know, again, he was someone who was claimed for his artistry and seemingly, you know, his equanimity in terms of the way he was cast is, is something, you know, it, he was cast, you know, in Zorba the Greek, and he was cast as villains, and he was cast as, you know, Mex Mexican bandits, and he had an outside life, outside personality, 
and uh, I think you can see that in his in his acting. And you know, again, an, a, a really good example of someone who had to deal with, you know, what others, how others wanted to portray him, or wanted to use literally use his him and his craft in their creative vision. Right? So think of what might have happened if folks like Ricardo and, and, and others had been permitted to do their own stories. You know, I was just talking today with a colleague of mine about, just think of for every, every time that a member in our community has been declined in terms of a pitch or, you know, a, a project not being given that green light hundreds, thousands of stories untold. What might have happened four years ago if our stories had been told? Could 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 the narrative have been hijacked? Our narrative, our Latino, Latina, Latinx narrative been hijacked the way it was? You know, if folks knew Maria Griever and knew where those songs came from. And not only that, if they knew that she was so influenced by jazz, by, by, you know, by what was happening in New York, by these jazz musicians in the turn of the century, in the 20s and the 30s, she's, she was very public about that and how it influenced her artistry as a composer. So I think that, you know, the, the breakthroughs, this question of the breakthroughs, yeah, we're having breakthroughs today just as we had them 75 years ago, just as we had them... 30 years ago. And it's really cool to go back and, and check back on what folks were doing back then. Yeah, somebody like Anthony Quinn, I didn't know he was Mexican until like I was in my 20s or 30s maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just, he was just seemingly like, like where was he from, right? Because he, like you said, he was Greek. He had that amazing performance in Lawrence of Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, just like one of my favorite scenes of all time. Um, right. So that it's... He's just, he's part of the American film experience. And even I, and many folks didn't even know that he was from Mexico or he was Latin, you know? Yeah, because, you know, how many of us heard from our parents that you had to assimilate? You know, you had to turn into something that was outside of your heritage. And so Linda Ronstant, who... I mentioned in my in my uh, response to that to that blog to that uh, post social media post, you know, she was someone who and is someone who's beloved because she just said no, you know, this is who I am and I'm going to have this album Canciones de mi padre and I'm going to do it, and uh, and so she was able to transcend the way folks were trying to keep her, you know, in that rock and roll box and uh, that that created two or three more albums. But she was also a fantastic actress. She got a Globe and Golden Globe nomination for, you know, what? Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> Come on. I mean, it was fantastic the way in which artists of our community have been able to surf this notion of identity and claim their identity and claim their artistry in how they want to. You know, it's her story. It was her, her tia's book of canciones that was beloved in her family. It's her father's music, Don Gilberto's music, that she claimed and said, I'm going to do this. You know, and still, the, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that album is the most, the most 
holds the record for the most albums sold in the Spanish language. Wow. I have friends who are mariachis who tell me that, uh, you know, as an aside, friends who, who play in mariachis who, who tell me that, you know, there's life before canciones and after <laughs> because, like, they would play the same songs, but they had to be Linda's version that right. she did with her mariachi on our. They had to be that version, that arrangement that people wanted to hear, right? It was you so know, popular. You're so right. And I remember walking into into the living room of our house. I was visiting my parents. I'd you know I'd moved away and I was coming back to visit the folks, and I didn't realize the extent to which their generation had been forced to suppress their identity until I literally. No kidding, I walked into the living room. My father was sitting in his chair, you know, in the living room, crying. I'd never seen my father cry before. And I and I said, Daddy, why are you crying? And he pointed to the little, you know, record album, the little record player on the floor that was next to the chair and Linda was singing. And he looked at me and he said, that's my childhood. Guy who fought in World War II, I'm getting a little emotional here that's when he reclaimed his identity because he had to hide it a man who told us you have to speak english first you can't speak spanish they my mother and father would get into fights over speaking spanish at home and she never stopped speaking spanish at home and he said you know no you have to speak english first so the work of these artists and the breakthroughs that they achieved are so impactful even today but definitely then What does all that history tell us about this moment of In the Heights? What's old is new, what's new is old in terms of the fight, la lucha, that it it continues. And that reclaiming identity and reclaiming memory has to continue every single day. Because if you think you've won the battle, you know, that's, that is when you're at risk of losing the war in terms of achieving equity, achieving this idea of inclusion, this American idea of inclusion. And so In the Heights is so essential and so much a film to be celebrated, a show to be celebrated, and music to be celebrated. And yes, discussed in terms of the casting, a dialogue that's that that's happening but that's all good and and it has to keep happening consistently so that's where in terms of this idea of breakthrough yes it's another breakthrough because what coco a film i worked on happened in 2017 and when it, when has there been another you know sort of tentpole project we all thought great we're going to see a lot of this now and que pasó nothing happened until in the Heights, but you know, In the Heights had appeared on the stage 
And then it took, you know, films take a long time. But because there's not enough in the pipeline, because we don't have the development execs from our community who get it, who'll say, yes, we're going to do this. And yes, I know that the box office is going to be uh, robust. You know, don't worry about that. You're going to get your ROI on your investment. You're going to get it. And so I think to, to that point, it is a breakthrough. But don't we all want to be at a place where it's not a breakthrough? Because it's yet another wonderful story to be celebrated in a series of stories to be celebrated that are consistently being offered by our storytellers from our community all the time, not just once every 10 years. So I totally get it that folks are saying, yes, it's a breakthrough. And I would say it's a breakthrough in a continuum. Let's remember who came before us and thank our lucky stars that those stories are there because, you know, they inspire folks like Lynn manuel Of course they do. And thank our lucky stars for him and his work and hope that we don't have to keep saying it's a breakthrough. but Or perhaps we say it's a breakthrough, but for another reason, not because we haven't seen this, you know, our stories uh, told in so long, but because it's like some amazing thing that happened with respect to artistry that's like, oh, it's blowing your mind. Wow, what a breakthrough. But not a breakthrough because we've been excluded, but a breakthrough because it's some cool thing in music or in theater or in film that's just that aha moment is, you know, in your, the thought bubble over your head. It's like, oh my God, I had no idea he could do that. Wow. I want more. Marcella, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about this little bit of history. It helps us put everything in a perspective. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It was an honor. I really appreciate the conversation. You are listening to Alt Latino, and I am Ana Maria Sayer. For almost 50 years, the East LA band Los Lobos has been documenting their view on life with 16 studio albums, four live albums, three compilations, two EPs, and a boatload of appearances on compilations and film soundtracks. Wow, that is a legacy. Every year, the National Endowment for the Arts awards its annual heritage fellowships to master folk musicians and traditional artists in recognition of the multi-hued fabric that is our country's cultural reality. Up next, Felix is talking to band member Louis Perez about how that recognition is much more than a tribute to the band. So just this morning, it was announced that Los Lobos won a National Endowment for the Arts Heritage Awards. Give me your reaction, man. How do you feel about that? It's incredible. It was uh, announced to us about a few weeks ago, but we just went public with it today. And it just kind of completely blew us away. This is a big deal. This is national recognition. That's the way we're looking at it rather than an award. We've been everywhere. We've been, uh, you know, we've been in the White House. We've played for presidents. But this is a legit acknowledgement of what we've been doing for the past uh, 47 years. 48 years is uh, November. <laughs> but who's counting, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. 
On the one hand, you know, it, it, I think it acknowledges your work in preserving, as you always have done since I saw you guys, I think in 1976 when I was in high school, you guys have always been preserving the Mexican heritage with the instruments and with the music and with the traditions. But at the same time, it recognizes that contemporary Chicano life is also part of the heritage, is also part of society, the fabric of society. So there, it's not like you guys are in a museum, right? You know, you guys are you're out there actively working. You're still writing. You're still performing. You're still interacting. You're still part of our, our community. And it seems to be like a dual recognition there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. We're, we're not like in a plexiglass box in a museum somewhere. <laughs> uh, we're, we're still out there. Because you know what? Like yourself, Felix, we have work to do. We still have a lot of work to do as a culture. The events over the past 15 months in all, all levels, you know, on race relations, uh, cultural relations, everything has just been in the forefront. And now that we have an opportunity now to rethink society, American uh, society and how it works. But yeah, we, we, we've been doing this for a long time. And to a certain degree, we're still doing the same work that we did when we first formed this band these rock and roll kids who put away electric guitars to play regional Mexican music, which was unheard of back then. But that work still continues in, in everything that we do. We're just fortunate to have it on, on, on the world stage now. So, and we take that with a great deal of responsibility. You guys have been for so long the truest representatives of people like me and, and people that I know that reflect our life, our culture, what we think about, what makes us happy, what makes us sad, uh, what we dream about. So uh, this Heritage Award seems to recognize also in a way that community as well, you know? Yeah, that's that's right, absolutely. I've never seen the, these things as just something that is directed toward us. I always see this as, as a way, as you put, that elevates our culture at, as, as uh, an important part of, of the fabric of America, of the United States. And everything that, that, that we, we have achieved, we have achieved for, for all of us, not just us, ourselves as a band. You mentioned the 15 months of the pandemic. How did you guys spend that time? And I see online that you guys are out there back on the road again pretty soon. What's happening? We took a long nap for about three months. (laughs) (laughs) We had been working so hard and we didn't realize how hard we were working until you stop. You know how that is. You know, you get onto that that wheel like a little uh, little hamster or something. And and we finally got off that wheel and we, we had to decompress for a while. But then we got back to wanting to reconnect with our audience, our gente, and do things that were constructive. And we, we did several campaigns for, for mask wearing, and we're now involved in, in getting everybody uh, of our people uh, vaccinated. There's a lot of uh, people who are very reluctant. We're trying to dispel a lot of the myths and untruths about vaccines, saying that we all have to do this together. And again, that, that falls right into, squarely into the, the subject of culture is that we have to unite uh, no matter what, what color we are. We're, we're doing this as, as, as human beings caring about each other. In terms of uh, moving forward, you guys have new recordings coming out anytime soon? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, on the 17th of July, we have a, a record. We had started this project, which is a, a tribute to Los Angeles, playing a lot of songs from uh, bands from L.A. or at least got their st- start in L.A. And we started that in... Um, January of 2020, then we got shut down. And then we got back to it in person during the summer when things got better. We, we were recording the studio where we were all spread out. We had to just like, you know, 
just about you know call each other <laughs> on, the, on the cell phones hey call off the song you count down the song so we finished that record finally a couple months ago it's called native sons and it's got the midnighters jackson brown great blues artist war we did a song from war because you can't do a record about la without war so it's a cool record and uh, a couple of the singles have already been released and uh, the whole record's going to be out in a couple of weeks. So the uh, Heritage Awards is, is very appropriate because once again, with this, with this project, the LA Project, you're capturing a living, breathing culture as it existed and as it exists now. So congratulations, man. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Our anniversaries this um, November will be uh, 48 years old. And uh, that means it's only two years away, 24 months till the big 50. So uh, one day at a time, you know, do, doing what's right in front of us, but that's, that's coming up. So there's been talk about doing some, something big for our anniversary. It's, uh, hey, look at how, how, how fast 15 months went by. Yeah. yeah and two years can evaporate too. Yeah, but no. we're still here. We're still doing things and we're still uh, you know, busy. As I mentioned before, it's still a lot of work to do. Sorry about that. The phone's ringing, man. It might be a gig. I better let you go, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Louis Pettis, thank you so much, man. Thank you. And I appreciate you, you acknowledging this. And, and it's always great to, to be part of what you've done and all Latino on, on NPR and doing for all of us. Thanks, bro. Thanks, man. Okay. Abrazos. Igualmente. And now on to another award announced this week. Most people associate the Pulitzer Prize with journalism. But they also recognize achievements in literature and music, believe it or not. This year, the awards for things like poetry, history, nonfiction, and drama were either awarded to people of color or had themes that dealt with our communities. That included the prize for music, which went to Tanya Leon, a respected Cuban-American composer who won her, for her orchestral composition called Stride. It was commissioned by the New York Philharmonic to celebrate the centennial of the right of women to vote in this country, and had just one premiere performance before, sadly, as we all remember, the entire country locked down at the start of the pandemic last year. Felix caught up with Tanya Leon at her home in New York to talk about it. Tanya Leon, musician, composer, conductor, educator, and now Pulitzer Prize winner. What was your reaction when you first heard the news? Well, I, I had no idea that was happening because uh, I didn't know anything about the announcement that day. And I found out through a colleague of mine that heard the announcement and he was the one that got in touch with me. <laughs> so otherwise, I would have continued the entire day. And who knows when when was I going to be able to to find out? I don't know. <laughs> but once you once it settled in that you had won, what did you think about the the reaction? It's a tremendous honor um, because uh, now that I am in the thick of it is that I realized that it's a very coveted price and uh, how important it is for the community. It, 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 it's a tremendous surprise. I mean, something that I didn't expect. Your composition stride was part of the New York Philharmonic's Project 19 Commission. Can you tell us what that was about and then tell us about the composition? Well, it's actually the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Women's Rights in the United States. The woman's right to vote. Exactly, women's right to vote, I'm sorry. And um, the person that uh, steered this idea uh, was Susan B. Anthony. 
I was approached by the Philharmonic along with 18 other composers that happened to be women uh, in order to make a statement as a celebration, a musical celebration to the effort of these women a century ago. And of course, I mean, I was invited to write a piece and uh, it, it just so happened that my piece, I uh, dedicated to her. Uh, it also so happened that during that week, it was her birthday and um, the rest is history. And it's tried because by reading about her life, her resilience, everything that she wanted to do, plus um, many things that I have actually witnessed that every time that there is a group of people that believe in certain principles, they actually gather and in a way they march. And that is one of my experiences when I arrived in the United States that I, for the first time in my life, I saw the marchings of the people that were actually supporting the ideas of the civil rights. When I uh, started writing this piece, all of these different uh, memories started coming to my mind. And uh, also, you know, in the case of uh, Susan B. Anthony, and uh, the movement that made possible for these to materialize uh, remind me very much of the women in my, in my family that were unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is an energy that I, I know very well. You know, in, in the earliest days of your very prolific career, you were a founding member and the first music director of the Dance Theater of Harlem. How do you look back on your contribution now of the group's efforts to promote Black dance and music to U.S. audiences during that time? Because it's 1969. It's just five years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. It was still very volatile then. Well, you know, I have a very particular view about our behavior towards race, you see? Because um, I think that it's just a narrow-minded type of attitude. And I think that also is a masquerade attitude towards power, meaning using certain alibis for those that feel that power is omnipotent to sort of like demise another group. I mean, in other words, we are tribal and we have continued to be tribal, even that now we, we have these incredible cars and televisions and airplanes, you see? And that's how I have uh, viewed this situation, that is a situation that uh, is ongoing, you know, all over the world. 
And one of the things that I really despise is the amount of labels that are attributed to people when people are people. Each of us is a re representative of the human species. So what one thing has to do with the other? So um, that is something that since I was growing up, I had a lot of uh, thinking about that. Besides that, I was surrounded by a, a completely a mixed family, you know, and this was not a discussion. I mean, this was not part of that. So getting into the world and seeing all of this, and that's why the marches of Martin Luther King made such a big impression on me. Uh, to find out that group of people in the world will have to fight for something that is the right. You know, I mean, we're born in this planet. I mean, we're not from another planet. <laughs> it's the, the, the same planet. We all walk in two legs, you know, we have eyes, hair. Who cares what is the texture of the hair? Who cares what is the language that we speak? Who cares? in what part of the planet we were born, you see? And I was born a woman, and that notion that women are sort of like second-class citizen in this planet for one reason or the other, when it is not because one thing is because the other thing, but this is mental disrespect to the human being that, after all, is the one that brings, perpetuate the, the the species, because I mean, we all are born of a woman, you see? Yeah. So I mean, so all these things, you know, I mean, were uh, percolating in my mind as I wrote that piece. And it's, I mean, according to the description, you know, it's a piece that has also uh, some sort of like commentaries that had to do with American music and uh, all the music of the Americas. And, and, and it's uh, precisely, it's like memories that, that the, all of a sudden enter into the piece and they disappear in a way. And the people that identify with uh, those gestures that might recognize something that sounds American or, or recognize something that might sound Latin American or, or whatever, they recognize that moment. And, uh, and there's a moment in the piece that is sort of like a march, because I mean, the steps, you know, it's steps and it's steps that, that go forward. I mean, like, like an invisible ghost or something that is actually walking in the middle of the whole thing until the end. Mm -hmm. You have such a distinguished career, many high profile commissions from major orchestras around the world, conducting and music directing, seemingly from every corner of the earth. Did you ever dream such things could be in your future when you were a young girl in Cuba? No, absolutely not. Uh, I thought that I was gonna be a pianist, you know, and one of the pianists that I had really admired was Martha Argerich. So my dream was just sort of like become another Martha Argerich in a way, you know? in Latin America. And uh, I always talk about traveling. I told my family that I was going to live in Paris when I was nine years old. And uh, I had all these big dreams and my family looked at me as though I was nuts. Because I mean, how, how? I mean, in the middle of an island and, you know, in the middle of a 
a poor household, why did I have dreams like that? You know what I mean? I never thought things were impossible. Mm -hmm. And yet here you are. Yeah, now I'm surprised. You know, people might not uh, understand that I, I'm surprised myself. It's like when I found out about this uh, award, you know, and my, my colleague called me and told me this was just announced. At first, I mean, I, I just could not believe that this was happening. And then I cry a lot because I mean, I remember all these, my ancestors, you know, and those that I never met. And uh, my family is comprised from people from different cultures. And outside of that generation, I don't know. We don't know where the other people came from. <laughs> I mean, my brother and I will always say, who? I mean, where? I mean, where are we from? I said, well, the planet. <laughs> you know? But we really don't know. It's like all these people set foot into the island and and they love the island and they stay. And the next generation was us. That's it, you know? <laughs> well, I know you're very busy. Uh, you were very, very gracious to give me some time today. So I, I will uh, end the interview here. And I hope that at some point in the future, we can talk again uh, when you're not so busy uh, with all the uh, accolades and adoration and your usual you know, daily business stuff. But I hope that we can uh, talk again in the future. Thank you, Felix. And before we close this show out, there's also been a bit of inspiring news last week that involved a Mexican cultural center in the Bay Area with a little bit of a surprise donor. I was at least shocked to hear this one. Felix, do you want to tell us about that? So Mackenzie Scott is the ex-wife of billionaire Jeff Bezos. She has been giving away billions of dollars in philanthropy. That's with a B. And in just under a year, she has donated $8.5 billion. Now, just a few days ago, the folks at Los Sensotles Cultural Center in the Bay Area announced that they received a grant of $1 million. Our friend Eugene Rodriguez, who is the director of the nonprofit and a leader of the band of the same name, says the group will create an endowment with the money to use the interest to support their programming and Mexican folk instructions to the youngsters. Very, very surprised announcement, but very, very good news. It's very exciting news. I knew she was going to be giving away all this money, but oh my God. <laughs> it's quite amount of money. So lots of Latinos in the news this week. Thank you, Felix. Our thanks to Marcela Davis and Aviles, Tanya Leon, and Luis Perez for taking their time to speak with us. Also to Alt Latino intern Rihanna Cruz for their help with production this week. And before we sign off this week, don't forget to help us out by taking the podcast survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. This kind of direct feedback with you, our loyal listeners, will help us in so many ways. Thanks so much. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Ana Maria Sayer. Thank you so much for listening. Everyone have a lovely week. And let's close out the show with some more from the Pulitzer Prize winning composition by Tanya Leon, Stride. Our thanks to the New York Philharmonic for this bit of music. Felicidades, Tanya León. Oh.